How many of you like Easter eggs? Is there anyone in the room? And man, you get some good kinds nowadays, don't you? It's not like when I was a kid. Like there was like one type. But, I mean, let's see. Let's see. Who, 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 whose favorite is these white ones? Anyone like, like the white ones the most? Wow, they, they're a popular choice. Okay, I'll see what we'll do with that later. How, how many like the marshies best of all? Okay, marshies. Oh, what, what about the bunnies and the eggs? Anyone like a big fan of the bunnies and eggs? Okay, some excitement in the room. Well, we're starting a new series today, and guess what it's called? Easter eggs. And you might be wondering, why are we going to be preaching about chocolate for the next few weeks? Well, the answer is, we're not. Those are not the kind of Easter eggs we're preaching about. In fact, there's another use for the word that some of you are familiar with, and that's to use the word Easter egg as a clue of something to come. To use the word Easter egg as a hint or a symbol of something that's still going to happen. You know who's famous for this in the world at the moment? Is Marvel. Any Marvel fans? Well, let me say, any pre-Endgame Marvel fans? Oh, yeah. Marvel has been just great over the last, like, 20 years. Like, I mean, they've just been weaving in these stories, right? And then, like, you see this, like, sign, you know, like, the, the camera flashes past the poster, and you're like, oh, Captain America's coming in the next movie. You're just like, you know, it's just amazing, all these little clues and hints and this interweave story. But can I tell you, Marvel did not invent Easter eggs. You know who invented it? God did. Because I want to tell you guys, as you're reading through the Old Testament, and even in the New, there are literally thousands, thousands and thousands of clues and symbols and hints of all the things that are still to come. There are all these little intricate stories and colors and symbols that actually point to something else the entire time in Scripture. Actually, what we're going to see is that the entire of the Old Testament points to one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And what we're going to be doing in this series is looking at some of these Easter eggs in the Old Testament, some of these clues and hints, and looking at how they foretell Jesus, foreshadow Jesus, how they give clues and symbols about his life and ministry and what that means for us today. In fact, as Jesus is resurrected on Resurrection Sunday that we're going to be celebrating next weekend, Jesus is now in his glorified body, and he meets two of his disciples on the road, the road to Emmaus. And these guys are downcast, they're distraught, they're despondent. And Jesus bumps into them and says, hey, what's up, guys? Why are you so down? They don't recognize him. Jesus is in his glorified body. They're not even making eye contact. They're looking down. And they're like, what do you mean while we said? Haven't you heard what's happened this weekend in Jerusalem? Haven't you heard that the one we follow, Jesus Christ, was crucified? And they're just like, man, they're just stewing in it. They're in the pit. They're, oh, they're just so despondent. And then Jesus starts to share with them. Everything that happened was planned. And this is what it says in Luke 24, 27. As Jesus is talking to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, right, the whole beginning of our Bible. And he took them through all the prophets. And he explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
In other words, this is like the greatest Bible study, by the way, in the history of the world. If there's one Bible study I wish was recorded and like available on Spotify and YouTube for us to watch again and again, it would be this one. Because Jesus literally went through the Bible, book by book, through the scriptures, and he's like, this is talking about me, and this is talking about me, and this is talking about me, and all these things were predicted. I want to show you all the Easter eggs. What happened now was not a mistake. And then Jesus disappeared, and I think those disciples must have been like completely face-palming themselves that they didn't recognize it was Jesus. And so I want us to look at possibly some of the things Jesus must have said. Some of the scriptures in the Old Testament that we can use that points to Jesus, that explain the ministry of Jesus. And the first Easter egg we're going to look at is found in the character of Joseph. Look at someone and say, get ready to hear about Joseph. You know, Joseph is a phenomenal character. And what I find shocking about the character of Joseph is the amount of scripture that documents his life. In fact, the entire second half of Genesis is all about one character, Joseph. It's all about him. And and guys, that is an incredible amount of real estate. No other amount of attention is given to any other character in Genesis, not to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. I mean, 14 chapters. Let Let me just tell you what happens in the first 11 chapters. We have the story of our origin, the story of creation, the fall of man, the, 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 the selection of Noah, the flood of the world, the repopulation of the world, the nations coming from the family of Noah, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. All of that happens in the first 11 chapters, and then the Bible spends 14 chapters on one guy. It documents his life in detail. The character of Joseph, and it's amazing as you read through it, how many similarities there are between Joseph and Jesus. In fact, some theologians have calculated over a hundred similarities between these two lives. And so I want to go through all 100 together today. Some of you are panicking. I saw fear in your eyes. I'm not going through the, all the 100, but I want to select like the ones that I think are the most significant. And I want to begin with this. Both men lived righteous lives, completely righteous. Look at someone and say they were righteous. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but there isn't a single bad word said about Joseph. Not a single criticism. In fact, according to the Bible, he was flawless. No mention of sin, no mention of weakness, not a single bad word or criticism is spoken against Joseph. And that makes him unique in all of the Old Testament. Because can I remind you, the Bible ain't scared to throw out your dirty laundry for everyone to see. Like it's not scared to talk about your weaknesses and your sins and your mess ups and your flaws. It certainly does it with everyone else. Like we read about everyone else's junk, Noah's and Moses's and David's and Solomon's. We like, we see all these shortcomings and flaws, but with Joseph, not a single sin, criticism or flaw is mentioned in all 14 chapters of his life. There's only one character in the Old Testament who's presented as flawless. And there's only one character in the New Testament who's presented as flawless. Any guesses who that is? 
Jesus Christ. Both men lived incredibly righteous lives, men of integrity. Both were uniquely loved by their father. Look at someone and say they were loved by their dad. In fact, that's the first thing that we learn about Joseph as his story unfolds. It causes a lot of issues. And here we read in Genesis 37 verse 3 that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. Now, just a side note, that is terrible parenting advice. Okay, don't say, but the Bible says, no, 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 because we're going to see what happens when you do that. If you want your kids to hate each other, favor one of them. If you want your kids to be at each other's throats and have no relationship, favor one of them. So Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, a technicolored, multicolored robe. A gift, it was an honor for Joseph to wear this. It was a sign of favor and it was also a sign that he carried with him his father's authority. Guess who else had his father's favor and his father's authority? Jesus Christ. We see as Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River, in Matthew 3 it says, Jesus says, this is my beloved son. It's almost the same words as Jacob. This is my dearly loved one. He's my beloved one. In him I am well pleased. He just pleases me. Like I look at Jesus, he just pleases me. And if we do indeed believe that this robe represented favor and authority, let me remind you in Matthew 28, it says Jesus has now been given all authority. He's been given the authority by his father, just like Joseph was. Both were hated by their brothers. And this was a result of the previous one because they were favored by the father. In Genesis 37 verse 4, it says, But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word about him. Now, the Bible's showing us a little bit about how humans work. If you know people in your life that cannot say a kind word about you, it's probably because they're jealous of you. Don't take it personally. Have compassion on them. They envy your life, they envy your family, they envy your situation. They, they, they struggle to be nice towards you because they're so full of envy. It happened with Joseph's brothers. It will happen to the people in your life who think you've got it too good. It's also a reason, parents, not to favor one of your kids. They'll end up hating each other. In fact, they hated each other so much. Well, not Joseph hating his brothers, but his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery and faked his death. And they told the dad, this old man, hey, the son that you loved, I mean, he's gone. No, he's been killed. Uh, he's no longer here. And they sold him into slavery. And then you look at Jesus. And Jesus was a man rejected by his own brothers, his religious brothers, the nation that he first came to save. Those who were religious, the common people loved Jesus and accepted Jesus and followed Jesus. But the religious people who were supposed to be his brothers in the Lord, they hated him. They hated his ministry. They hated the signs and wonders. They hated his wisdom to the point where they pushed him to death and shouted, crucify him. They wanted death for him. 
just like Joseph's brothers wanted death for him. Both had brothers that hated them. Both were then unjustly sold for pieces of silver. In fact, if you go over and look in Genesis 37, it says, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? He's kind of trying to save his life. Like, yeah, what a nice guy, right? But look what he suggests. We'd have to cover up the crime if we kill him. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Imashmalites, those traitors. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, said, and his brothers agreed. And so as they came by, those traitors, they sold their little brother. They pulled him out of the pit they had just thrown in him to kill him, pulled him out of the pit and sold him for, 30, for 20 shekels of silver. You fast forward to the New Testament, and what do we see in the life of Jesus is that he surrounded himself with these 12 disciples, close, the closest brothers he had in the faith. And one of his own brothers betrayed him for 30 shekels of silver, unjustly sold, put into the hands of the enemy for mere money, just for silver, rejected by those closest to him. And I want to say, if you ever in a place where you are struggling with some rejection, maybe the people closest to you, that you're just feeling like your family or those people you want to be in relationship with or those friends, they're pushing you aside. They're not paying attention to you. They're not loving you like you know they should. I want you to know Jesus knows what that feels like. He knows what that he was. He was betrayed to death by one of his dearest brothers. Both of these men had that in common. They were both falsely accused. We see Joseph because of his integrity. I mean, he must have been an amazing man of character because wherever he went, he was promoted. So we see him in Potiphar's house now. Potiphar's basically given him the running of the house. And so the problem is Potiphar's a busy man. He's always at the office and his wife's alone at home. She's like the original desperate housewife, right? So there she is at home. Joseph is this young man, this strapping, good-looking young man. She looks at him. She's like, ooh la la. Hey, Joey, baby. You and me in the room now. No one will know, right? I mean, he just had an opportunity there to indulge in his flesh, right? Just get away with it. No one's going to know. Obviously, the wife isn't going to tell the husband. I mean, there's complete open door for temptation. And look how Joseph responds. In Genesis 39, verse 9, he says, Hey, ma'am, no one has more authority here than I do. Your husband, he's held nothing back from me except you because you are his wife. Let me remind you, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And you know how she responds? Help me! I'm being raped! Help me! Somebody come and help me! And he runs off and she grabs his tunic. Now she's got evidence, right? Falsely accused when he wanted to just do the right thing. When she was completely in the wrong. Of course, Potiphar believes his wife. 
And he ends up in jail. He ends up in captivity because he was falsely accused. Sound familiar? We see Jesus in his ministry. They keep on trying to set him in a trap. And eventually, the religious are so, so frustrated that the Sanhedrin actually, that they level false accusations against Jesus that eventually gets him in prison, gets him entrapped. Both of them had to stand and be completely falsely accused for crimes they did not commit. And then both were placed next to two criminals. We see Joseph placed now in a prison cell, and there's two criminals with him, the chief baker and uh, the chief butler of Egypt. Happened to share a cell with him. What's interesting is that Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he fulfills the prophecy that we see in Isaiah about the cross, and he's placed with two criminals, one in his left and one in his right. And when you start looking even more into it, what we see is that the butler and the baker had two different outcomes. One of them was sentenced to death, and the other one got promoted right back up next to the king. And we look at the criminals on either side of Jesus. What do we see? One of them mocks Jesus and ends up going to hell. And the other one says, Jesus, I believe in you. And Jesus says, tonight you're going to be with me in paradise. One of them was led to spiritual death and the other one led to spiritual life, right? It's foretelling what's coming. Both of them were put in charge of everything. In the story as it unfolds in Joseph's life, Joseph becomes eventually the prime minister, basically, of Egypt. He's put in charge of the land. And uh, listen to this in Genesis 41, verse 41 to 42. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand, placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Effectively, he was put in charge of the entire kingdom. You wanted to do something? You had to ask Joseph's permission. You wanted to get food? You wanted to survive? You wanted to buy land? You had to get Joseph's permission. He was in charge. And what we're told about Jesus is that Jesus has now been put in charge. He's a king of kings. The Lord of lords in John 3.35 says, The Father loves His Son and has put everything in His hands. He's given Him all authority. Both of them have been put in charge of everything. Both of them actually rode triumphantly into the city to show their status, both Joseph and Jesus. When Joseph is promoted to second in the kingdom, Pharaoh puts him on a chariot and parades him in front of Egypt. In Genesis 41 verse 43, it says, he had him ride on a chariot as a second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And what we're celebrating today in the lead up to Easter is today's a day on Palm Sunday that Jesus Christ himself rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people shouted and they, they celebrated. It says in John 12, 13, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This was already foreshadowed in the life of Joseph hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Both, both went from honor 
through death and back to honor. Joseph started in a place of honor in his family, highly favored by the father. He went through death, thrown in a pit, sold to slavery. His death is faked. And then later on, he's elevated to the place of highest honor in the land that you could get. Jesus, exactly the same thing happened. Leaves the throne of heaven, empties himself. He comes and is born and he goes through death. And after death, he is elevated to the place of highest honor, seated at the right hand of the Father, foretold in the life of Joseph. And what I find amazing about Joseph's life is that he kept his integrity. He didn't, he didn't speak out against his circumstance, whether he was going through the pits, humiliation, or whether he was experiencing honor. His integrity stayed the same. When he was in the pits, when things were not going his way, when things were be, being taken away from him and he's being falsely accused, you can look at his life and say, that's such an injustice, this shouldn't be happening. And you wouldn't blame Joseph for saying, God, why and how? And, and, and criticizing Potiphar's wife and criticizing the people in prison, you forget him, but he doesn't at all. And then when he's raised to the place of highest honor, which I think is a greater test of a man's character, when he's promoted and given power and authority, in this position where he's given power and authority, he doesn't use it for himself. He's not self-serving with it. He doesn't do this to honor himself or bring attention to himself. Whether he is humiliated or whether he is honored, he stays a man of truth and integrity and he fears God. And he shows us what Jesus is like. He shows us the heart of the Father. Both of them eventually have everyone humbly bowed down before them. In fact, Joseph had this dream. It got him into a lot of trouble with his brothers. He had a dream that everything's going to be bowing before me. And then we see that prophetic dream coming into reality in Genesis 42 verse 6. It says, since Joseph was governor over all of Egypt and in charge of selling the grain to all the people, it was him that his brothers came to. And when they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground, something they had sworn they would never do. We'll never bow to you. But eventually everyone bowed. Everyone bowed to Joseph. And here's something we find out about our king, Jesus Christ, in Philippians 2. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. And finally... The final similarity I want to pull out is that both were able to forgive the unforgivable. You know, when Joseph's brothers were finally in front of him, the very men that had plotted his death, robbed him of his home, sold him into slavery. When they were in front of him, they didn't recognize him. In that moment, Joseph could have made life so hard for them he could have used his power and authority to punish them, to kill them. I mean, and he would have got away with it. No one would have even have known. But instead, what does he do? As these brothers who have done an unforgivable act, this family that has truly rejected him, done nothing right, only wished him evil, couldn't say a kind word about him, when they are in front of him asking for help, he gives him help. 
He gives them food. He doesn't allow them to pay for it. He puts the money that they pay for it back into their satchels. He doesn't want their money. He goes to Pharaoh. He bargains for land for them, the best land in the kingdom of Egypt. And he gives it to those same people. And we could look at it and say, they didn't deserve that. Well, guess who they represent? <laughs> Us. We are those brothers. We are the brothers who sin made us. It sent Jesus to the cross. We were enemies of God. And I know we can look at our lives and say, I don't deserve forgiveness, Lord. Well, this is just the heart of Jesus. He gives it anyway. He is able to forgive the unforgivable. It was foreshadowed in the life of Joseph to show us that no matter what you have done and how bad it gets, no matter how gross the injustice and no matter how little you deserve it, Jesus has decided to forgive you anyway. You are forgiven. And when he looks at you, he is not using his authority in heaven to punish you. He's using his authority in heaven to feed you and give you a home and provide for you and give you an eternity and give you a heaven. And did you deserve it? No, but does he do it anyway? Yes, just because he loves you. And this is the heart of Jesus revealed already in the heart of Joseph. And it's a foreshadowing church. That no matter what we've gone through, we can be sure that we have a Savior. We, we have a man who's lived so righteously. We have a man who no matter whether he's in the dips or at highest honor, he, he's lived flawlessly. We have one who was rejected, hated by his brothers, sold for silver, Surrounded by criminals, falsely accused, but now has been raised to the place of highest honor where every knee will bow. And he did this so he could forgive you. You see, the story of Joseph, this foreshadowing of Jesus, doesn't in fact stop with the life of Jesus. This story is still going on today. You are part of it. You are part of this. You are part of this grand story. And it's such a good reminder to me, church, that Jesus was not some backup plan. He was not a mistake. He's not something that God had to come up with quickly in order to deal with sin. No, Jesus was the plan. He was the plan from the beginning. And God has been telling us from the very beginning from Genesis 3 already, when he says to Adam and Eve, hey, this, it's going to be the fruit of your womb that's going to be the heel that crushes the serpent. Jesus. Right from the beginning, it's all about Jesus. Everything in this word points to Jesus. And I hope that as you read this, your awe of God increases. Because when I read that, I think, God, this entire time you were weaving this tapestry. And when it looked unreasonable, when it looked like nothing could go right, when it looked like injustice and rejection, you were in control. When it looked like there was a lack of provision, when it looked like a life of hate and struggle, you were in control. And I've got to say the same with us guys. Sometimes, you know, things happen and we're like, God, where are you? And I can just picture God, He's weaving 
our lives. He's telling his story. He's in control. When I read this, my awe and wonder of God just goes through the roof. And I hope today that you would just be in awe of who God is. There is no one like him. There's no one else who could do what he's done. There's no one else who could tell the story the way he's told it. There's no one else who from the beginning could plan such a beautiful savior that he could take care of my sin. He could take care of your sin. And no matter what you've done, it's taken care of today. You are free and you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And you were a terrible brother, but he forgave you. He's using his position of power to forgive you, to provide for you, to give you a home. It's revealed in the life of Joseph and it's available for us today. And so today we're gonna come around this communion table as a church. And I pray with all my heart that as you realize that this cross was weaved into the story right from the beginning, that you would have an increased sense of awe and wonder. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take stock. I want you to hold those elements in your hand. Don't rush this. Use this time. I want you to think about this body broken for you. God planned for that body to be broken as he was laying the foundation of the world. He looked forward and he saw you and he knew you would need a broken body. As he was laying the foundation of the world, he looked forward and he saw you and he knew you would need some blood to wash away your sin. And then he looked to heavens and he saw the one who could do it. And he sent him for you. It's been planned from the beginning. I want you to take those communion elements, hold them in your hands and just increase in your awe and your wonder. And some of you right now, your life looks a bit like Joseph's and you can't see God right now. You can't see his plan right now. You're in the prison. You're being falsely accused. You're being rejected by family. You're being hated by brothers. May we have the heart of Joseph, where we say in the highs and lows of life, my heart will not turn against God. In the highs and lows of life, I will remain faithful to him because he's weaving something. He's telling a story. I can't see it, but he can. He's telling a story with your life today. So can I ask the communion team to come forward? I want to say that every one of you who are a believer today, you're invited to join us. This is your story. And I, I want to say the Bible says we must not take or approach this table unworthily. And if you for a second think that unworthily means, oh, well, I've sinned this week and I've been a bad person and I've fallen, so I can't take communion. No, well, then your theology is whack. Your sin shows you your need for the cross. It shows you your need to enter the throne of grace. This is why we take these elements to say, Jesus, I need you and I'll never not need you because I'll never not sin. I need this blood to wash away my sin. I need your body to stand in proxy for me when I face disease or death. I need you. And so no matter what you've done, 
Jesus, he's not focusing on your sin. He's focusing on your soul, your spirit. He wants you. He wants your attention.